Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more. I think a lot of guys in my position now, the phrase, uh, this is the show that's gonna take me to the end, not to when you die, but it's like, all right, to the point where you're thinking about, and that sounds, I, I, that sounds harsh for me to say, cause I'm not 85 or 90. And I wanna think that like any musician, you're not giving up on your instrument. And as drummers, it's a little easier than say a trumpet player. Uh, to say that I don't want to give up my instrument because people are afraid to tell me, dude, you, you kind of should give up your instrument because <laughs> you can't play anymore or you're not sounding good enough because right. some of us might be deluded and it just feels good to play. But it, you know what I'm saying? It's that right. um, in some sense, the, uh, the energy it takes to play a Broadway show. And yeah, let's be specific. There are musicians who still want to keep playing, can still play their butts off, but at a certain age, they're just tired of just playing a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I kind of want to go a little bit on the wisdom of a good friend of mine, Ron Ginelli, one of the great doublers on Broadway, who's in his early 80s now and sort of retired. And a big part of that is he, one of his specialties is being an excellent bassoonist. And he was a first call player, for, not for just shows, but he lived in LA for 20 years and did a lot of film and TV. And that's a lot of instruments to schlep around when you're a Broadway player, because you got bassoon and whatever other woodwinds you've got. And he was a very busy guy, but we did a couple of shows together and would, um, drive together uh, if we were taking trips upstate because we both have uh, places up there. And he said, I, I'm doing this now. And he was in his 70s because I love the hang. I just want to be around musicians. And he stuck it out. And for various reasons, he, he's sort of given it up. And the sad thing is, and we don't know what the future will bring, but the sad thing is, is that you might be ready to give up Broadway for all reasonable excuses. It's time to like, cause after a while you don't want to just barely be making 50% because you just barely want the gig. So you think, all right, for good reason, this is my last show. And financially going back to what I was trying to say before, uh, you think, all right, maybe the show will carry me for a little while. Uh, but if you do give up Broadway and you're still a good player who can contribute, you just have to hope that you find that outlet and that you're able to do it not once a year. After Ragtime, you did 
Follies or you were the rehearsal drummer for that show? No, I, I did the revival of Follies, which, you know, on your list of things that you wanted to cover, uh, really hard to pick the favorite show that I played because they're all so different. Just like picking your favorite drummer, I was going to say, it's all in the context of the bands they were playing in because I would never go by like a YouTube video of some drummer playing by themselves that blew me away. So in the context of favorite shows, I would say that Follies was particularly special. First of all, hearing that music with the 28-piece orchestra, and I've been incredibly lucky in that three Broadway shows I did, all with Jim Moore, had 28 pieces in it, which is huge, literally and figuratively for the biz of Broadway. And Follies, we were all in the pit. It was all acoustic. And needless to say, it was kind of tight, which was kind of cool because I had Ray Kilday, uh, one of the most solid bass players you could ever work with, just to the left of my hi-hat, and Greg Utzik, one of the most solid, great guitarists you could have, literally in front of my drums. I wasn't like, there wasn't tons of baffling, I don't believe. And to lock in with those guys... Uh, especially with certain tunes. Uh, and to hear that music acoustically uh, was particularly special. Uh, I mean, the show starts out actually with a very impressionistic sounding piece before you play what's technically the overture where I don't play. And it's three or four minutes long and it's beautiful. I would sit there for three minutes, listen to the orchestra play that, and then bam, do this show busy two beat overture and it was uh that was a special show i mean but I, I, there are a few though that for different reasons yeah tough for like a favorite show but follies was special how long did that run that was meant to be a limited run i we started in the fall and they extended us a couple of weeks into january it just had a great cast and as with many Sondheim shows, it's particularly special for the fans of, of musical theater and of Sondheim in particular to not only see a production, but to see it full on like that. And uh, we got to record that. And yes, I've been on a bunch of cast recordings, many of which are still uh, not the one and only. They were revivals, but it was still a pleasure to put that down. Did you get a chance? To, did, did you get a chance to meet Stephen Sondheim? I met him a few times, not enough to make any kind of super connection. But the most meaningful experience with Sondheim was I got to do uh, this uh, Sondheim Festival at the Kennedy Center in 2002, which was like summer stock at the highest level. I say that in all modesty. Uh, it was all DC musicians except for myself and a different conductor for each of the six shows they did in repertory. And I did the two shows out of the six that had drum set. And Sondheim was there for every show, as you've probably read or heard, and I know many people have when they've been reading uh, obituaries and tributes, that he was very involved in as many of his productions as he could be. And he was there, uh, I did company with the original orchestrations and with Jonathan Tunick conducting it, 
which was kind of wild uh, that, you know, playing the show with a great cast uh, and the orchestrator is there conducting us and Sondheim was there for the rehearsals. And then I did um, Merrily We Roll Along with Eric Stern conducting, which I, I've told people the funny story, Eric, who self-professed uh, tightly wound guy, but brilliant, brilliant conductor. Uh, Sondheim would, during tech rehearsals, was sitting in the front row of the theater right behind Eric, standing on the podium in the pit, a relatively shallow pit. And at one point, uh, they were sort of figuring out how to do something musically that matched something on stage. And they couldn't figure out what to do. And Sondheim said, well, I think you should do it this way. And Eric, <laughs> he turned around and he said, no, 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 I think we're going to do it my way. So let's just try it that way. And everybody just like, shut the fuck up. He's like, what? <laughs> he just turned around and nothing was said. And you knew, because if you know Eric, he's a great guy, but he's so, um, hmm, how do I put this? So, uh, Opinionate is not the right word. He's just so aesthetically tuned into what he does. He couldn't help himself. And you knew by the expression on his face that as soon as he said that, inside his head basically exploded. And the next day I saw him in front of the Kennedy Center and I said, Erica, how's it going? And he went, oh my God, I called Steve last night and everything is fine. But, you know, and Sondheim is, he was, he was, uh, a lot of different things. He could be hard, but of course, it's, it's his works, and he wanted to make sure they were represented well, and he was very, very specific about what he wanted. I, I'm saying this because I, though I only met him a couple of times, like you had asked, I did see him in action a bunch, which was a privilege. And, uh, but he also was a very giving guy and, and a softy, even though when you hear him interviewed, he seems very um, uh, intellectual, which he also was, and very one of the, here, I will say this about him also, of all the artists I've seen interviewed to talk about their art and explain it, and you know, the other extreme is Miles, who might say, you know, rightfully so in some ways, if you can't hear it, I'm not going to explain it to you. However, Sondheim could explain things in really interesting, illustrative ways that makes you understand his head and how he composed and ways in general. It was, he was, he's a great person to listen to talk about art, whether you're specifically into his music or just the creative process. Cinderella. Another thing written for TV by Rodgers and Hammerstein that was never live. So actually, though, that was having done a lot of revivals and um, things like the encores. I've done a few original shows, but Cinderella, even though the music had been written for TV, I think like 1960 for Julie Andrews, and then it was done again in the late 60s. Uh, David Chase, who I would give a shout out to out to who orchestrated that and uh, rather um, arranged all that music. The, the TV version was kind of stayed and, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein, you want it to really sparkle because otherwise it's 
for today's audiences, it might be not bland, but well, Cinderella needed a little sparkly touch to take something that was done for TV in 1960 to make it a live show. And that was an interesting experience because yes, at a, at a level, it was me and the pianist in the rehearsal room. And they were really, in this particular case, on the fly, changing, thing, min, changing things minute to minute, where Andy Einhorn was our conductor. But during that rehearsal period, David Chase was running the engine tweaking things minute by minute, second by second, giving it to our copyists, changing the music. Yes, I was reading the piano score, trying to make up a part. And that was five weeks down to tech rehearsals. And then, of course, things still get changed during previews. But that was an interesting creative process. And David Chase was particularly amazing to create a show that was the longest thing I did on Broadway. I think that was two years uh among other people i mean it's weird i'll just not to be a little sad but i went from follies working with danny burstein who's been through so much publicly and then his late wife rebecca um did the fairy godmother uh in cinderella she wasn't the original but uh i just them they're on my mind uh i've been thinking about it lately and uh yeah, there were there were some special people in that show as well. Also, a decent sized orchestra. I've been luck. Well, I'm not going to complain that it's 14 and company because they're badasses and they sound great. But uh, one of the luckiest things for me, Broadway wise, is having done shows with large ensembles. What's the largest ensemble that you've worked with? Uh, well, on Broadway, it was the three shows that had 28, and another show. <laughs> I guess if we're talking about my career uh, that had 28 besides Follies and Ragtime, which we did the original orchestrations, was On the Town. And in some ways, that was the greatest show that I did because <clears throat> I did get to do West Side Story in Europe. And to answer your other question that you had on the list, the hardest show in that you wanted to play that it was a hard show and you wanted to play every note right because that score demanded it. You wanted to play West Side Story. So on the town, I had only known a few of the songs. It wasn't as complex as West Side Story, but Bernstein's music is so freaking amazing. And it means the orchestrations are also amazing. And here's a guy at the time was 24 or 25 when he wrote it. It was a great cast. It was a great production. And uh, importantly, the producers recognized the thrill of having that large of an orchestra, and they used it as a big part of the promotion. Uh, back to talking about what it sounds like when you're in the audience. When I sat in the audience for that show, because I wanted to see it, uh, not always, but when it was, there's a lot of incredible dance in that show. Uh, when it was dance and the, it was ballet and it was meant to sound like a great classical concert because so much of that music has been done uh, by major orchestras and you hear that dance suite. Um, <laughs> it's funny, the sound guys not only cranked up the band a little bit, but they added, <laughs> they added uh, reverb because in, I think in their mind, it's like, oh, if you're hearing a symphony on stage, we want all that 
extra ambient sound. Uh, whereas when we were playing more of the show busy parts of On the Town, I think they took off some of the reverb, maybe also because if they're singing, they don't want that extra wash. But On the Town was, man, that was a thrill. And that recording we did, there is a recording of On the Town mm, pieced together by some people involved with the original that Bernstein conducted. But this was a comprehensive recording that came out really good. And, and we did that in Manhattan Center. Have you ever recorded there? That's where they uh, record orchestras and, and movie scores. And I'd never been in a huge hall like that. I'd only been in the, you know, the studios in Midtown. And mm, I think as far as by a little bit of the cast recordings that I'm on, I'm pretty proud of that. It came out great. Is that one cast recording that you find to be your favorite? Uh, I might say the one that I would enjoy listening to, which <laughs> I would guess that it's come up in some of your conversations that all pit musicians like to famously say, I got my copy of the CD and it's still in the wrapper. And as much as I don't listen to Broadway music that much, I'm thinking, I'll be honest, if this is the legacy I'm leaving artistically, I want to listen to it once in a while, even if it depresses me because we're all so critical of our own playing. And I think, well, I'm the dude that messed up this recording, you know, more than anybody because this was less than perfect. But having said that, uh, I have on the town on my iPhone and I'll listen to it. And certainly, like every other Broadway recording I'm on, it ain't about the drums in any way. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the jazz recordings, uh, as much as they'll never be enough, I don't have enough of me on that. That's where I'm expressing myself personally and interacting with the other musicians. But the Broadway stuff, if I listen to it, it's because it's great to hear that music. And man, I'm sorry, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, I might love other Broadway composers. I love Jules Stein uh, of modern composers. Ragtime is really dramatic. A lot of things I like, but for the whole package, uh, Leonard Bernstein with just the few shows. Well, I don't even know the other ones. I just West Side and On the Town. But there's something satisfying about that music on the most levels, if that makes sense. Tell uh, me about Dames at Sea. Oh, man. Uh, you know, ironically, not ironically, sadly, um, that... I left, did I leave on the town? Because they, the producers pushed that show way beyond what they could afford to because we got great reviews, audiences loved it, but it was a tough sell and an expensive show. So at the end, I, I did jump ship um, because I think, oh, wait a minute. No, what am I saying? I, I'm confusing that with another show. I'd stay to the end of uh, On the Town pretty much, I think. Uh, Dames at Sea, uh, the reason why I'm saying this is because 
that was a hard show to keep going because it was a huge, expensive show. Dames at Sea was written for a cabaret act where they had six performers and I think two pianos. It was meant to be a funny spoof of the old Busby Berkeley movie musicals. The, the biggest shtick being that they had six people and two pianos to recreate something that was a huge, over-the-top Hollywood musical splashy thing. And it was all hammed up and they, the six characters played the archetype characters in those old movie musicals. And it was cute and it was funny and it, and it introduced the young Bernadette Peters and it had never been done on Broadway, even though that title, you think, oh, I heard of that one. That must've been some old musical. And uh, Rob Berman was the conductor for that, taken over by David Gursky. And uh, um, it had great tap dancing, a really funny, very game cast of six people playing these old-timey characters. It was a great band. I got to work with John Beale, the bassist, who I always worked with in the encores, but I'd never done a Broadway show. And instead of piano, two pianos, I think we were nine people, eight or nine. So we were larger than the cast. And we played on one side of the stage in the wings. And it was fun to play because all the shows I do at some level are fun to play and I enjoyed doing it. And the main thing I was hopeful for was it was a small theater and a relatively cheap show to put on. And I thought, well, all these shows I'm doing that are so expensive, eventually they, they can't sustain it. Here's one of those shows where, you know, they got a profit, they have to make $200 profit a week and we'll run for a while. And I want to run for a in a show so long that I quit because I've had enough, not because, after two months, they say, thank you, good night. And it didn't last. It lasted a few months. I had a blast doing it. The end. <laughs> that doesn't bring us to where you are now. You, have, you did Holiday Inn in 2016, right? Yes, and that was also a limited run because it was meant to be a Christmas show. And that mm -hmm. was at Studio 54 on the heels of the show that Paul did, which was Oh, no, no, it wasn't his Kiss Me Kate revival that he did. By the way, you joked that he did them both. And I was, while I was listening to the podcast, I went, well, Paul, you didn't do the original. That was in the 50s or something. Um, but uh, they had just done a, sh a musical there. It's so funny to do a musical in Studio 54. Jeff, never, I've never been in there. I, I really want to see it. Well, here's the thing, man. It's... It's a theater. It looks like a lot of other theaters. I guess if there is a pit, it's been boarded up. But as you've heard, unless the band is on stage, what they've famously done there is they put the band in the balconies on the little side box, box mm -hmm. seat areas. And if it's more than a couple of people, half the band is on one side of the stage, the other, and, and everything is remoted and they make it work. And, uh, I was wondering how it was going to work. It was not as swingy big band as I told you as White Christmas, but it was still Larry Blank, and they write great charts. Um, notated a little heavily for drums, if I might say. I've never seen a show uh, the way it came out, apparently, and whatever the program is, it was just like uh, your brain, too much information. It was overwritten. But the charts themselves were good, and... Uh, um, 
you know, appropriately cornball, but shit, you know, Irving Berlin tunes that were so classic, fun to play. Uh, got to record that. Also another movie musical that had never been done live. And, uh, you know, I think this is, yeah, this is a theme here, you know, I know. And I'm not even <laughs> realizing it as much until I, I, I say it out loud. Movies, uh, <laughs> I know. Hey, it's, it's, uh, well, I wonder what movie musicals that had never been on Broadway or left. Maybe I'll still have a career. <laughs> I was just going to say as an aside, Studio 54, man, uh, I was never into disco, but, and I moved to New York in 81, which uh, there was still certainly, as long as Coke was big, a lingering <laughs> scene at Studio 54, but that was from the mid-70s or a little later. Mm-hmm. I don't, the, the real heyday was, I don't know. 78? Yeah, and like a few years in particular. But just to be in that theater, which otherwise felt like, yeah, another Broadway show, another Broadway theater, and to know that, uh, you know, uh, somebody was sniffing Coke off of yes, Cher's of tushy or something. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. That's going to go out to the public. But, <laughs> I, I, but I, that's not hyperbolic. I, I, I'm not to say that, that that literally happened, but all the crazy stuff that happened there mm-hmm. and the debauchery and uh, it's incredible. So... <laughs> Like a lot of things historical in New York, your imagination might run wild uh, when you're backstage in a place like Studio 54. After Holiday Inn, did you wind up going on tours? Did you have other shows after that? Well, uh, the truth is, uh, after Holiday Inn, a couple of life changes personally, uh, which is not interesting, but... um, it was a lot of things happened right around then that just made things a little tough only in this or mainly in the sense that we all can't sustain. I mean, I was lucky for about seven, eight years in a row. And I will say as much as any musician is lucky to have a show run a million years, I think we all fantasized about, Oh, I want to be the guy that does a show for three months or six months and then a contractor calls me to move to another show. And I have a few months off in between to play other stuff. And you have that fantasy variety where you are working all the time, but not on Broadway all the time. And you, you do different shows. That's something we have no freaking control over. Mm-hmm. But I had a little bit of that for seven or eight years, which made me feel really lucky. And then it was a little slow. It was rough. And when it's a little slow in the freelance world, it can be particularly tough because it's not like you have a huge savings from the steady job you had for 20 years before that. It's up and down. So it was tough. I didn't work that much. I had the encores. I was probably finishing the last couple of the 11 years, I think I did, of the Kennedy Center Honors, which was a whole other exciting gig that but I only did once a year, but amazing, but it was slow and nothing, nothing seemed to be coming my way for, not that I expected to get my own show, but I also didn't sub very much. That's, that's something that's, I might have a calm demeanor on the outside, but 
I have a hard time with the um, stress of going into sub on a show. So I waited and then I realized, you know, touring is fun. I'm not sure I want to do it again, but if something comes up and it's the right thing and long story, not so short, I, I found out Hello Dolly was going out. Uh, then I found out Bob Billig was conducting who I had a great experience with years before that at the Kennedy center. And, uh, it was like done, I'm going to do it. And coincidentally with what you were saying to, uh, talking about with Paul Pizzuti the other day, I went and watched Buddy play that Buddy Williams play that show. And we were all probably, uh, interested, curious, uh, and amused to think here's this icon of R and B in the seventies and eighties. And we knew we had a history with Bette Midler and that he had done Motown, right? You subbed for him on that. Mm -hmm. I did not know Buddy personally. And and knew how that whole story had played out, which is great if you have a TMZ gossip show to do eventually about, you know, the, the uh, seamy side of Broadway musicians. But uh, Buddy was doing the show. I watched him play it, exactly what Paul said. Super, super simple. Almost more simply than I would have, well, I wound up doing it for 16 months on the road. They, and they did combine the book, so... At first, I thought, oh, I have to play timpani and bells too, but I was glad because it was very much the stereotypical classic boom chick show. Wow. Not that, not that it, every show is hard. I will mm -hmm. say that as well, that technically simple does not mean anything with Broadway. Either you learn to play the show in the beginning or not. After that, it's just... Are you finessing it so that the boom chick sounds really good? And I'm still learning how to do that. But uh, Hello, Dolly was simple. I was glad to eventually have the extra percussion to play. Uh, Buddy was fun to watch because, yes, man, I know he's an R&B player. So that bass drum anchor was metronomic and so solid. And that's probably why Paul, who's probably more... Uh, vaguely in the same category of a drummer who comes from a similar background to me, as opposed to Buddy, who, you know, that one and three on the bass drum, you know what I'm saying? And, mm -hmm. and that anchor, not the, the anxious sound of Broadway, where everything seems to have this edge to it, which is appropriate for Broadway, even though drummers, we want to be metronomic. But you know, it's not going to get much better than Buddy. And I'm sure, you know, that sounds like the world you come from as well. Mm -hmm. So the, if we're categorizing drummers, a, a fun distinction is to hear him play something like Hello, Dolly, and appreciate what it is that's so amazing about him. That might not have been the first thing you thought of when you think of a choice for Hello, Dolly. Yet, Bette Midler, that was her comfort zone. She right. wanted to know that Buddy was in that chair. Right. Buddy was hysterical. You know, when I said, oh, yes, he, he, had one, he had one red LP woodblock. And I said something like, wow, you know, like the percussionist has everything else and you just have the one woodblock. I'm surprised, you know, they didn't give you a few more toys or whatever. And you just turned to me without, you know, blinking an eye and said, man, 
I don't do that shit. You know, it's like <laughs> any extra toys and show busy stuff. He's just not that he couldn't do it, but right, right. You know, right. he uh, and it was it was it was cool. Um, and he said it in his deep baritone voice too. Oh yeah, <laughs> and he was you know grateful to have the gig and all of that. Um, yeah. I remember him always saying, "Man, this is this is your world, man." You know, because when I saw for him at the Color Purple and at Motown, I was like, "Man, this is your world, your people." Because you know, he he said he he doesn't do that much Broadway. I guess maybe when I interview him, I'll ask him. Yeah. Well, did he do anything before Motown on I'm Broadway? Not, I don't think uh, he did. Uh, he might have, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll find out. But yeah, he he, you know. But look, it's his world now. <laughs> It is. And hey, uh, I don't know. You know, it's it's a combination of the personality of the person. Like if you got him to say, hey, sum up your experience on Hello, Dolly. Well, it's complicated. That show was had its uh, complications, but it's always interesting. Here's another thing of the many facets you're going to find out as you talk to drummers coming from different places, their actual experiences and what actually happened to them uh, matching their attitude about what they say. I mean, Buddy might say, you know, like I wasn't necessarily looking forward to Hello Dolly, but I'm glad I did it. I had a great experience. Or it's whoever he is, he might say, oh God, you know, that was just so not my world. Uh, I shouldn't speak for him, but you know what I'm saying? He might, mm -hmm. It might have been cringeworthy for him in some ways, although I think we can be sure that if you're playing with other great musicians, it's never cringeworthy. The music might be the furthest thing from what you're into, but that's what I, I'm not dissing the music that I am playing, certainly not now or ever on Broadway, but it's always more about the, the great players you get to play with and me looking around going, you know, what am I doing here? I, I, it's not that I, I come from the generation I'm older where playing Broadway was my dream. But when I did go to Broadway shows, it was a huge deal and it's a certain level of professionalism and yeah, I, you know, I got the history of guys. Yeah. And gals. I, I say that, a lot when I'm doing yeah, a really. show. I'm playing and I'm listening in my cans to Keith Robinson and Larry Saltzman playing guitar. And we're playing just my imagination. You got Keith play, picking the part and then Larry playing these beautiful chords. And I'm just playing. Yeah. Do, 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 and they're just grooving. And you got George Farmer on bass. I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this. And I know. I, I said that to myself when I was at Memphis the Musical. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm getting paid at the time a lot of money. I was, <laughs> uh, has that changed? Well, yeah. <laughs> I was single. I'm like, man, this is the yeah. greatest thing ever. And then now I'm doing this podcast, and I got to say, I can't believe I'm able to talk to Bill Lanham and Sean McDaniel and Paul Bazzuti and Gary Seligson and, and Shannon Ford. I mean, the list is, it's, growing and growing. I was like, these are my colleagues. 
these people are my colleagues. I can't believe I'm talking. Yeah. And I can call Buddy Williams and say, you want to be a part? He's like, yeah. I, I can't believe I'm doing this. Which is part, partly because I worked all this time in New York, <laughs> busting my butt and dragging drums around playing CB's gallery and playing, uh, you know, all these small clubs and working my ass off to get to this point. I'm very grateful, but I'm like, I can't believe I do this. And it's a, it's a wonderful experience and I don't take this for granted. Yeah. Really important to feel that way, to express that, to remind yourself because we're all going to feel down for whatever reason about stuff. And that's certainly one of the things that keeps me going and yeah, give yourself also the kudos that, you know, when Keith and Larry are playing guitar and, and I got to work with Larry in the Kennedy Center Honors and yeah, he's a, he's a badass that when he hears your backbeat, he's also pretty damn happy that you're there every night as well. So um, we don't want to take that for granted and it's not a forced thing where we're just saying that to ourselves to that we don't believe it. I do believe it. And I am humbled by it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I even still wrestle with the not deserving of doing it. Because if, if I look back and I go, all right, I, I did these things. Um, my, if I do listen to stuff, sometimes I dig this, man. I, it's not It's not a big ego thing per se, but if I do want to relive an experience and with a little distance and perspective, I'm sure we all have recordings made from the pit uh, and not necessarily the ones made crudely, but maybe that we got from the soundboard or something, or even some of them were made from an iPhone or something. I have a recording of White Christmas that was made on by... I guess I can reveal this in public now. Paul Woodiel, great violinist, made it on his first iPhone, the first iPhone to come out from where he sat. And damn it, you know, listening to the recording of just one night in the pit, and in that particular case, the balance was pretty good. I'll once in a blue moon, I'll play that. And sometimes the grooves are better than the recordings because I, in the studio, and it's a whole other thing to get in there and, you know, wham, bam, do it real quickly. And it feels a little different. And you don't, you don't like the take they took because I rushed mm -hmm. and whatever. But I, I like listening to those recordings. And that's where I feel most proud. It's like, wow, I got to play with these guys. And you don't even have to like the recording throughout. But there are just moments where it makes me smile and go, ah, at least I did this. Your experience playing shows and, and getting certain shows started from the ground up. You've done a lot of revivals. Um, when you go into a, a situation like that for rehearsals, you get handed the piano vocal. Right. And you have to come up with a drum part. Do you go back over, like for a revival, are you going back and listening to the old recordings or are you just coming up with something on your own to do it your way? What do you do? What's your approach? Really good question. Um, first of all, 
setting aside the encores, which for the most part, the absolute goal is to give the audience a sense of what it was like to, to hear the show. Seeing it is different, but to hear the show the way they might have heard it originally. Um, so in that case, you really will go to the recording and if not play it exactly like whoever it is, we'll never know who a lot of these musicians are because sadly they never list them. Uh, but even with revivals on Broadway, uh, for example, Follies, it was actually Paul Gimignani playing drums. It was the last show that he played drums before he switched over because I think he was an associate conductor on it and took over. But actually, in many cases, drummers who are still anonymous to me. But personally, I like copying the styles that I hear of drummers on the recordings. Uh, it's interesting to me. I sort of like the history of it. And so I will try to recreate that unless I hear the recording. I know I'm going to be playing orchestrations that if they're not the same or similar, if I somehow feel like, oh, I can throw in a little bit of my own thing. On the Town was the original orchestration, 28 pieces. Uh, so many times Bernstein's conducted or other great conductors have conducted like suites and you hear every drummer play it a certain way. I, I want to cop it so that it, it, it doesn't take away from someone experiencing being taken to a time and a place. So I do try to cop that style. In the rehearsal room, when you're with the dancers and just piano, <clears throat> what makes up for the, the drag of just playing with drums and piano and it being a long, tedious process, for me, is mostly offset by the fun of getting to know the conductor, the associate conductor, pianist, and the people in the cast, which gives you the, if you're lucky enough to do extra rehearsals, gives you an advantage that the rest of the band doesn't get. You know, you, you do a few rehearsals with the band and you might never see them backstage. And that rehearsal process is nice. And also if you are, whether it's um, Cinderella, where you're really creating, even though it's, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein music. I really helped create that part with David Chase, I think. Uh, or if you're just recreating what was on a record, sort of, kind of, um, you're not really getting to do that in a satisfactory way in the rehearsal studio with just piano because it's not in the context of being with the orchestra. Needless to say, and you know it, and everybody you've interviewed knows this in a big way, a big thrill you get to experience is, especially after being in that rehearsal room for weeks, and forgive me if every drummer has said this, but uh, you've been rehearsing with piano, and then you get to that orchestra rehearsal, and uh, everything you've been playing out of context, kicking the band, little passages, and maybe you've barely even gotten to look at the actual part that you were going to play. You've been reading off the piano score. In Cinderella, being thrown sheets left and right in the middle of playing, we've changed this, we've changed that, and yeah, it might just be two beat or a waltz or whatever, 
but a triangle here, a rim shot there, the choreographer's changing everything left and right. That's fun. It's exciting. I like that process. And then you get into Carol's rehearsal studio or wherever, and uh, you can see it on everybody's faces from the conductor, from the table of people sitting there with their scores. And, uh, you know, I'll give it up to the fact that the rest of the musicians do not have that same experience. It's everybody who's been working on it for that long. And then you hear it. And then, of course, you know, after those few rehearsals, you do the Zitz Probe with the cast and they get to hear it. And I know you've done shows where the cast, you might hear someone in the cast interviewed separately. And it feels good to hear them say, you know what? One of the greatest moments in the whole experience doing the show is doing the Zitz Probe, where we got to sing with the orchestra after a month or two in the rehearsal studio. It's pretty freaking exciting. My ex first experience with that, doing that, was when I was in Seattle, another great city full of great coffee. I love it. <laughs> At least it was. I don't know what it's like in 2021, but... Uh, maybe still okay, okay compared to some other cities that have gone down the crapper, yeah. <laughs> so in Seattle, doing the rehearsals for Memphis the Musical, working with David Bryan and him telling me, yeah, play it like Tico, you know, meat and potatoes, just playing on the bell of the ride. Yeah, George told me about that a little bit, right. <laughs> so we were doing all this stuff and yeah, I played, you know, 16th notes on high, he'd, he'd do this and I'd know what he meant, play 16th notes. But anyway, I'd have to play somewhat softly because we're in the rehearsal room. But when we did the Zitz Probe, we got to play out, play with the mm. orchestra, Right, And I was like, man, I'm about to play this, y'all. I'm about to play this. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was a rock show, really, even though it's supposed to be about Memphis music. But, man, I couldn't wait to play that. And we played it. And the, the cast was just excited. And everyone was excited. It's just, like you said, it's a really, really exciting time and a great feeling to get that done. And then, oh, yeah. Then it all slows down. You go into the theater and then you got a week of tech rehearsals. <laughs> yeah. Uh that's look it is what it is but you're right that's exactly why that one experience you're never going to have that again in the experience of doing that show is that build up and when the orchestra rehearses and it comes together <clears throat> and then yeah even when you go into the theater for the first time and you're still able to play out yes you're all in the same room yes and yeah it can't be beat and as a drummer it's, it's funny, you said when you said, I'm doing this, y'all, looking around like, not everybody, no one's going to really understand it the way you do uh, in a certain level, unless you talk to other drummers, because the cast has their one view. The other musicians who haven't been doing rehearsals have theirs. Uh, maybe just you, the conductor, and the associate conductor, and uh, it's, it's a special feeling. What do you think drummers should always do playing Broadway shows? Well, once you get past the fact that you're, you've learned the show and the people are happy with you, what you should bring, if this is sort of what you're asking, I think you need to bring a certain default level of energy, enthusiasm, and consistency. Because the, the worst thing 
once you've started a show is putting out the sense either overtly or even subtly that people will notice even if you're in your own booth you're not even in the room is if you're a sourpuss and you're bringing down the vibe musically and socially i think when you have to do our unique gig night after night the problem is someone who it's rare that people aren't relatively consistent because that's just who we are and that's why we also are rehired for broadway shows is because not that a lot of our heroes who play their asses off couldn't do it if they wanted to but for whatever reason they haven't chosen to or they don't have the constitution for it you come in and you you bring it more or less every night and then finally to wrap up this answer i think a conductor they still might hire you in the future you still might be a go-to guy but if you're a drag to be around if you're not you don't have to be perky all the time but just show a sense that you're happy to be there more or less that's what i would say on the flip side what kind of things shouldn't you do as a drummer in a broadway show uh i think it would just be the opposite of what i just mentioned if you're disruptive in some way i use that word and i wrote it down and i'm thinking well once in a blue moon people are uh being a knucklehead in the sense that it instead of it keeping things fun and light and i say that you can even even be edgy and inappropriate in some ways but if it's i think you sort of sense whether this person is like that because they want to have a good time versus the people who are just dark and that's that's not cool that's not to say that people who are quiet types or whatever that's you are who you are but i think the you know i can only speak to what it is i like to come to when i come to work and what i would imagine a conductor whether they say it outright or uh you just have a sense that this is what they want is look it's it's hardest for that conductor that we don't always think about where we all have to bring it every night at a certain level and the conductor is not playing we see conductors go sort of on automatic pilot because they're human but we always have to remember that eh, as much as they want that band to sound great they have on their shoulders the extra pressure of knowing that the director of the show the stage manager it's on their shoulders so this is my way of saying don't make them just as we want to have a great relationship with that conductor because night after night it's all about that relationship you know you and the conductor if you go out on the road and you don't get along with the conductor that's freaking torture that's why uh have some sort of level of relationship so that the conductor is happy to see you and again it doesn't mean that you have to be chipper um, but this is an intense thing we do in that sense that uh, 
we have to do something that's very mechanical, exactly the same thing every night, but it's in the arts. It's a very weird, unique thing. And it sounds corny, but bring some level of joy or positivity that maybe gives, gets people off the hook who are not ebullient. Is that the right word? You know, who are just like chill and, and whatever. Um, that's fine, but don't, don't bring the vibe down because this is, it's hard to come in night after night and do that. If the band is able to keep up a certain level of quality, if it's cool with the conductor and the, the pit, and they're much probably less rowdy for a long time because of how competitive Broadway has become, as opposed to the days when it wasn't as serious, uh, you know, the drinking in between shows and sometimes in between acts. Oh, man. man. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. I, that's the whole podcast, as we often say when we're doing a podcast. That's a whole other podcast. Exactly. But, but uh, you know, if, if, if there are cut-ups and consistent cut-ups, yeah, those are things that keeps, keeps it going so that people are happy. And, and you sort of know the difference. If people are doing that because it keeps things light when you're in year 20 of The Lion King... <laughs> Right. And that's a whole other podcast, too, because <laughs> famously, they haven't been so happy over the years. Right. But if people are doing wacky things because, because in a positive way, hopefully the indication is that's good and it works. Going back to your one of your interests, there's always a list. Is Citizen Kane number one on your list of greatest movies of all time? <laughs> Oh, man. You know what? Let me ask you this as, as the host of a podcast. It's good to ask who your favorites, I think, or what's the greatest, knowing full well that many times someone's going to say, I don't have one. There's no such thing. Because any a good question shouldn't have an obvious answer. It's just illuminating because of how the person answers it. And I will say that I couldn't tell you who my favorite five drummers are even because I know that was one of your questions or favorite movies versus the greatest movies. Citizen Kane, without a doubt, uh, I watched it many times in college. I did a paper on the music, is one of the greatest movies. But making a list is tough. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I suspect if I watched it now, I would still appreciate it for in all its glory. And funny that Orson Welles, a true genius, just as the quintessential dude who at a certain point, he, he fought Hollywood, he couldn't keep it together, did a lot of silly things in the second half of his life, like a lot of classic act, uh, um, artists, was so not in sync with the genius promise that he had as a young guy. And how old was he when he did Citizen Kane? Uh, in his 20s, right? He might have still been in his 20s. I mean, the War of the Worlds radio thing he did with his acting troupe was before that. But Citizen Kane was 1940, 41, something like that. And a kid. Uh, Man, that's a, that's a whole other podcast, too, about the cliche of, of the great artists who do their best work by a certain age, and then it's hard to sustain. How much of it is them? How much of it is the public's 
demands and, and, and expectations. But anyway, I'm digressing again. I, you wanted to talk a little bit about my love of movies and stuff. And yeah, I could talk about that. Citizen Gain is great. I have a huge poster right above me of Taxi Driver that, uh, you know, there was a period where I saw it many times in a theater and that's a great movie. And there are some movies that we loved and we watch them now and they seem real dated and some <laughs> that hold up. And that's still a matter of taste. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, we've already formed the corporation and we've already trademarked it and we're already in production. So don't even think about this idea, but me and Rich are going to be doing Taxi Driver, the musical. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, and of course, the, 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 there is going to be a tune called You Talking to Me. That's right. <laughs> it's going to have the typical Broadway thing. You talking to me? Bring. Oh, you talking man. to me? <laughs> well, here's the thing about that. It's funny you should say that because back when you asked me that earlier, I was going to say, you know, what serious movies made in musicals? The thing is, we're already like, we've already been covered by that for like three decades with The Simpsons, South Park, and Family Guy yeah, taking care of those spoofs so brilliantly. Yeah, it's true. Um, and Everybody who does those, they could be mocking Broadway in the funniest ways. And, and even things like Waiting for Guffman that, you know, Christopher Guest did. Everybody who does those and are the best at them are the ones who also, they, they don't have scorn or disdain for Broadway. They love it. They, they get it. They can embrace the corniness and they can still skewer it. And it's, man, it's hard. Once, once I saw... Um, was it The Simpsons that did a musical of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and it seemed hysterical? And then, of course, they did one in mm. all seriousness. Um, well, you think about a show like Book of Mormon and right. how irreverent it is, and people love it. Man, I got to tell you, I saw it and I was like, okay, how bad could this be? And by the middle of the second act, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. Yeah. So, look. They did it, but they did it very well. And the music's, music's great. The story's funny. There's a way that, like you said, you know, it can be creative. There's a way to do just about anything. Yeah. Uh, however opinionated we all are, and uh, there are so many times I think, oh, my God, a musical about this and this and this, it's so wrong. I'm super opinionated about so, many, so much of that stuff, but I got to keep going back to that bottom line of when it comes to art, and, you know, look, Paul Pizzuti yesterday was talking, and I know I've talked to Paul about this many times. His attitude about avant-garde jazz is very much like, ah, it's noise and I can't get into it, whatever. Um, really dismissive of it, the way a lot of people are, and it's always a matter of taste. Uh, I, I can't get into hip-hop, um, but I never want to lose the fact that when I start saying it's not art or it's not music, I'll slap myself because it's not that we judge it by how popular and successful it's become. It's just at a certain point, you have to recognize that once we start trying to define what art is, um, it's, the end, it's the end of what, what art is it, because it, it has to be um, no holes barred, anything goes, and 
it's not so much that it's up to the public to decide. It's just art is really you're expressing yourself and communicating to somebody else in something beyond everyday. Oh God! Now I'm trying to define art, and I'll <laughs> and I'll step on myself because well, I haven't I, thought about this. You know what I'm saying? Although I think is that yeah. it has to be totally open. And I've heard, I've been to a Sun Rock concert. Mm. I was so into it and it was amazing. And I'm not going to look back and say, what was I thinking? I loved it. Uh, will I, do I say that you have to be able to play bebop in order to, to make uh, free music sound better or more coherent? Do you have to have that history? Did Jackson Pollock have to also be able to paint uh, you know, realistic stuff to, to, to give him credibility. You might think so, but as far as saying it's not art, I would say, uh-uh. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.